0: Folks, a very good morning to you. are very welcome as you join with us this morning, especially if you are visiting with us. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, we trust that you'll know blessing as you worship with us. Before we get into God's Word, let's take a moment and let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for this journey that those of us who meet here regularly have been on over the past number of weeks, going through the sand, seeing what they said in their own time, in their own place, but also reflecting on them through New Testament eyes, seeing their richness today. So help us as we get into Psalm 25. It's in your word for a reason. It's here to help us know you more through Jesus Christ. So help us as we each journey to you and with you and know you more and know you better. Help us in our thinking Take our hearts and capture us once again, so that we will know your great love, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) You can't go too far today in this world without being bombarded with products that are here to help you. Self-help products, whether they be books or whether they be courses or programs, we live in the age of self-help, where there's... Someone always ready to sell you what you really need. In the last 90 days alone, Amazon have reported uh, getting in stock 5,348 titles that you can go and purchase to help you live a better life. 5,348 in just 90 days. They also tell us that in the next 90 days so far, uh, they have already booked in 543 titles. That's phenomenal numbers of people who think that they can help each of us survive better in life. And the market want to tell us how we should be eating, how we should be looking, how we should be running our business better, how we should be parenting our children better, how we should be engaging in society, how we should become funnier, And how we should become more determined. And it just doesn't stop with books. Think about your supermarket trip. What are you bombarded with on every side as you go down the aisles? In preparation for heading off to Malawi in a few months' time, I've been scouring the shelves and stocking up on a few supplies that we won't be able to get whenever we live out there. And one thing a couple of months ago struck my eye very keenly was in the shampoo section. There's a shampoo out there that can promise to stop your hair falling out. And indeed, not just that, it can also regrow hair that once used to be there. I thought, brilliant. You can judge if it's time or not, but brilliant. There's another product that could help me in the future. For no purpose except my vanity, but there it was, selling at a price of $3.95 a bottle to tell me that I could look better in the future if I just buy this product. We are bombarded on every side by what the world wants to tell us, how we should be living our lives and how they can be better. It makes it sound as if the lives we have aren't satisfying or it makes it sound as if there could be more or there could be better out there. Whenever we reflect on the Psalms and what we've been looking at so far, dipping in and out of Psalms here and Psalms there, thinking about these songs written in life, in the fullness of life, we are beginning to see a picture forming that the pinnacle of life is found in Jesus Christ. You see, whenever we listen to the titles that I said a few moments ago of what people are trying to sell us to improve in life, we think that's not a bad thing. We could all do with a wee bit of help here and a wee bit of help there to to help us to be better at something. The problem is self-help leads us into one position, and that is it's all about me. Self-help is about helping me be a better person, helping me be more successful, and if we open God's Word and read it, we will find it very—we'll find it very hard to find that message in the Bible that tells us it's all about me. So our journey through the Psalms isn't about a self-help guide, but rather each Psalm is to point us to where we are to go for the best in life, which is our Father God and through Jesus Christ. If we had been going through the Psalms one by one. For one, it would take us three or four years to get it all finished, but we would be seeing and building a picture of what the Psalms are all about. They're split into five different books, and each book having its own different theme. Rather, we've been dipping in and out and trying to capture some of the the main themes of the Psalms that have been coming along, and this morning we're in Psalm 25. Psalm 25, as you first read it, is one Psalm that takes a bit of time to get your head around but what Psalm 25 is, is a, a deeper or a fuller version of Psalm 1. In these five books in the Psalms, the, the different five parts of the Psalms are divided up to, Psalm number 1 is the only one that doesn't naturally fit in. Rather, it is the introduction to this song book that we have in the Bible. So let me read Psalm 1, because Psalm 25 takes Psalm 1 as its base and then fills it out right in the heart of life. but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the song that starts them all off. It's not a self-help guide on how to live life best. Rather, it is the psalm that helps us focus on God's purpose and God's best for our lives. In this psalm, it's about trusting in the one who created everything and allowing his design to be the journey that we travel on. So now Psalm 25 takes this this core message of what God's people are to be in worship, and it it grows it. it. It causes us to think more by throwing in some life application that the psalmist has discovered as they've journeyed in life. We don't know who wrote Psalm 1, but if you look at Psalm 25, it says it's a psalm of David. Whether David wrote it or whether it was written for David, it was certainly composed in the context of David as king. Whether that be David on the throne or at a time when the stories of David were very much alive. And the psalm is split naturally into three sections, verses 1 to 7, verses 8 to 5, and then verses 16 to 21. And let me tell you one more interesting thing about this psalm. You can forget about it the minute I say it. This is one example in the Bible of how rhythm is used as a memory tool. So this would have been a psalm that would have been used for people to remember. A psalm that they would have learned by rote, and they would have then been able to use it in worship or use it in personal prayer. And what they used was the Hebrew alphabet. So it is an alphabetic acrostic Each verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Treasure that away for a a table quiz at some point. But it shows us the richness of these psalms, that they're not by accident, they're not for just some ambiguous purpose, but rather this was a psalm that was to be at the heart of the worship of God's people because of how it was written so that it could be remembered and used as often as needed. So the first section, verses 1 to 7, begins by focusing on the Lord, trusting in him and waiting expectantly for him. And then it ends, uh, towards the end, verses 6 and 7, with prayer, that he, that is God, for his part will remember the one who is singing or praying, but not the rebellions that the one who is worshipping has committed in the past, and in particular that God will remember his love, his covenant love to the people that he promised them. As you read this uh, first section, it seems like it's a a prayer for the self-righteous. Verse 2 asks that whoever is the worshipper is not put to shame, nor are their enemies allowed to triumph over them. It sounds very much from the heart, Lord, make me great. Make me above everyone else. Don't put me as the underdog, but make me the top dog. The thinking of a person and their relationship with God is very different from how our culture in the West would practice it. Whenever this has been prayed as, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me, we need to understand that a person's life was so intertwined with their deity that the life of the person reflected on the deity. So for the person who is praying or worshipping or singing this, what they're saying is, Lord, don't let me put you to shame. Don't let my deeds be the one that let people around look at you and think that you're the bad one. So when they're praying, Lord, do not put me to shame, they're praying, Lord, keep your name holy. By keeping me on track with you, let me not be the one that puts you to shame. So this is a psalm not about self-importance, but rather about a vibrant witness of God and how The worshipper desires God above everything else. Verses 4 and 5 then reflect the, the message of Psalm 1. These verses speak of submitting to God and allowing him to be the guide. And the singers here giving themselves up to all of God's ways, they are saying that they recognize God's ways to be the ways of truth, the ways of hope, and the ways that are better than going it alone. In the New Testament, we can see that God's ways are still the ways of truth. they still the ways of hope and the ways that are best in this world. Jesus issued the call of follow me to Peter, James, John, Matthew, and others. He's been issuing that call ever since, inviting us to come and follow him on this journey in life until that day when he calls us to be with himself. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, after teaching the church then what it means to be free in Christ, invites his readers to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. So following Jesus is presented to us as the way we should go, a way that is for our benefit and for our good. I have a friend who likes to put the satellite navigation system to a test. I've been traveling with him on a few occasions whenever we've had to use the sat-nav to guide us to wherever we're going. But my friend always thinks he knows better than the sat-nav. And he'd say, turn here, or or, turn there, or ignore that, just keep going straight. But every time, without fail, the sat-nav is the thing that actually proves to be right, rather than my friend's perceived knowledge of the local area. The sat-nav beats him, and he hates it. But it beats them because it is programmed to do exactly what you tell it to do. Find the quickest route, find the shortest route. You see, do we come and treat life a little bit like my friend and the sat You see, in principle, it's all very good to say, yes, I follow Jesus. That's easy to say. Every one of us here can say that. The difference is, can we say it and mean it by living it and acting it out? Not acting in some performance, but rather ensuring that everything we do, every act we undertake in life is rooted in a life that follows Jesus. Or do we try to be the one that outwits Jesus? Oh no, I know how to do this better. I know the quickest way. I know the best way. I know the successful way. The invitation is to follow Jesus. The psalmist says that there is no other way but to follow and to walk in the paths of God. Which way for you is, in your mind, the better way? Following Jesus or arguing and fighting with him for your way rather than his? Because ultimately, as my friend discovered with the Sapnaf, Jesus will always win. How do I know this? Because he has won already. He went to a cross, he died, he rose again so that the punishment of our sins would be cancelled and we would have the relationship with him that would lead us to our Father in heaven. And this leads us into verse 6 and 7. The deal with something that the Psalms don't deal with that very much and it's that issue of personal sin. The Psalms deal with national sin or or incorrect ways but we very seldom get to see the confession of of the psalmist's sins. So in these verses, the psalmist is is taking his sin seriously. But what he's doing is asking God to separate the sin from the sinner so that the promised love of the Lord will be shown. That God won't just look at both and put them both together, but rather he'll recognize the individual who he has promised to love and he will forgive the sin, separating the two so that there can be love and there can be forgiveness. See, we think of this covenant love as it's described in this psalm. Uh, We will think of it in a moment, uh, but we think of it too loosely. We think of it more like a promise. But before we think about what covenant love is, let's deal with what the psalmist is is talking about in 6 and 7, the personal sin that infects us all. See, although those who follow Jesus have been saved from that penalty of sin, that eternity of punishment, we are still influenced by the world around us. The world is a sinful place. It always has been since the fall, and it always will be until Jesus comes again. So each day we go into this world, we are influenced heavily by what is going on. And if each of us are honest, as I am honest to you The temptation comes too strong that I, and if we're all honest, we all fall into sin. We tell a lie. We steal. We gossip. We look at someone in ways that we shouldn't. We place the things of this world as being far more important than a relationship with Jesus Christ. But Paul comes to our help again in Romans 8, 35-39, that nothing can separate followers of Jesus from the love of God. But if we are guilty of falling into sin, then like the psalmist, we need to seek God's mercy by asking for his forgiveness. Our salvation is secure and sure. Nothing can take that away from us. But as we journey through life and fall into these pathways of sin, We must confess them. We don't just brush them off. We must take sin seriously. Personal repentance is a serious matter for the disciple of Jesus. It is an act that puts us in our place. But it's not a place where we always feel um, that we're beating ourselves up, where we always feel as if we are to be on uh, all fours on the ground and never being able to, to worship our God in fullness. But rather the right place that personal repentance brings us to, is a place of restoration and mercy as God once again showers his love over us. In this first section, the psalmist is truly acknowledging the characteristics of God and is not done in a way of trying to impress God. It is done in an honest and a truth-filled way where God is given his rightful place. In your worship in all of life, is your desire the same Do you have a desire to give God his rightful place in your life and in the world where you live? Because if we profess to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is what it means to be that disciple, to give God his rightful place. The second section of Psalm 25 is from verses 8 through to 15. The first section is almost written as a personal prayer to God, A time when you would use it on your own in personal meditation and prayer. The second section comes in the form of of something more public. It, It comes as something that would have been sung in public worship, possibly even a responsive praise or prayer. And in this section, the psalmist believes that the one who is humble and obedient, penitent and reverent and expectant, though a sinner, will be guided and blessed by God. God will guide without necessarily telling us how, but what God confides in his children is not the details of the plan, but his covenant. In fact, uh, the fact that he has bound his people to himself by steadfast love. So this word covenant again crops up, and it appears twice in this psalm. This is a big thing for God's people. Covenant is a big thing. Throughout the history of God's people, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, God's covenant is uh, important and it's special. In the Old Testament, there was a covenant given to Noah, Abraham, and David, that God would be their God and God would make the people of Israel his people. This covenant also promised God's salvation, that God would always save his people. And in the New Testament, the covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ through his death, and resurrection. We are people who are living in Jesus' times, and as such, we are inheritors of the covenant promises of God. That is a way of coming to Him and knowing His awesome love. We often think of covenant as a promise. And whenever we frame things in a promise, in this current age, promises don't really mean that much because they can be broken quite easily. We can break promises without fearing any consequences, but God's covenant is much more than a promise. And Derek Tidwell says this about covenants. Covenants are both more personal and more comprehensive than contracts. Ancient sovereign powers entered into covenants with subject people. In like manner, God covenants himself to be Israel's God and Israel his special people. The core of covenant is God's blessing, and the core of God's blessing is his love. Covenant love is strong, unfailing, faithful, and enduring. So as we come to God, the psalmist is teaching us to trust in his covenant Love, Because he is the God of covenant love, which we now see displayed in and through Jesus Christ. It is covenant love that completely sets us free. It's not a freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, but rather it is a freedom in eternity. Where we will not be bound to the evil one, but we will be free. We will be at home. We will be in a home prepared for us by Jesus Christ. That's what covenant love promise is. And this is the best that God has for his people. The final section of uh, this psalm, verses 16 to 21, returns to a form of personal prayer or song just as we saw in the first section. And in this final section, there's a recognition of the forces that are set against the one who seeks to learn God's ways. There are enemies who see this precious intimacy between the believer and his Lord as the key target. The maintaining of it must therefore be our chief aim. Whether these enemies are are physical or spiritual is unclear in the writing of this psalm. But we certainly get to understand that the author recognizes that the one who wants to walk in the ways of the Lord in verses 4 and 5 will be the one who will be hated, as he records in verse 19. And is it much different in an age like this? The evil one is so cunning. The evil one is is so stealth-like in his tactics, so deceptive in this world that's around us. More and more, the freedoms that Christians take for granted are being taken away by governments or other powers and authorities, but ultimately by the evil one. Whether it is the symbols that are worn or the practices that are central to God's way of life for us, the follower of Jesus is finding it harder and harder to know this world as a place of welcome. So how do we live in this world? How do we live in the here and now, this place that is not our home, but yet can so easily be attractive to us? Verses 20 and 21 may help us out here. For the psalmist, the only place to go is to God. He is the place of refuge. He is the place of hope. It is in God that we find our purpose and our security. Although the world may rage around us and attack us on every side, our salvation is safe in the refuge of God because of what Jesus has done. And verse 21 goes on to show how the person of God should live in this world with integrity and uprightness. This is not about a false piety or living in a way that is like a smokescreen where we appear all good on the outside but really we're rotten to the core on the inside. It's not about superiority. Rather, this is living the Jesus way. In writing to Titus, Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The way that we should be living right here and right now is the Jesus way. There is no other way that will see us through this life and into the next. The Jesus life says no to ungodliness And the attractions of this world that would take us away from him. We are to live self-controlled. We are to live honestly and truthful lives. In this way we will be holding to the truth. And we will be walking in the ways that God has for us. And to get us over any question that the Psalms are a self-help guide, Psalm 25 finishes, finishes off in verse 22 by taking the nation perspective, asking that God would redeem Israel. The Psalms are not about getting us a spiritual fix, a spiritual high, or just getting us through the next stage in life. The Psalms, like the rest of God's word and God's ways, are here to help us to live all of life and to live it in its fullness. Throughout the Psalm, the Psalmist is recognizing both personal and corporate community relationship with God. And we have touched very little on the corporate aspect of that this morning, but Psalm 25 calls us to come before God, to build our personal relationship with him. It does take time. It takes a lifetime. It does take effort, effort to break our hunger for having things our way on a daily basis. But what it does do, it prepares us for the glories that go beyond this world and into the eternity that is in the presence of God. Are you building your personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Or are you looking for a self-help way of making it through life? This morning I can say, without a shadow of a doubt, that there is one thing for sure. The way of self-help won't last into eternity with God. Folks, this psalm is here for our encouragement, for our blessing, and for our guidance. Let's listen to God and his voice as he speaks to us all corporately, but also privately. As he longs for us to fully and completely give ourselves to him and to walk in his ways, the best ways that we can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, in your wisdom, you have given us this book that we call the Bible. And from its first words to its final words, you have given us your story and you have made it our story. You have included us in it by inviting us to follow Jesus so that through his giving and sacrifice and resurrection, we can have a relationship with you and know you as our God and you delight in not just calling us your people, but your children. Father, this world, it etches on our minds that that's what it's all about. The next shiny thing, the next step in a career, the next step in family, whatever it is, Father, the world tells us that this is what it's about. But you tell us, no, there's something greater. Whether in the eyes of the world we live lives of success or lives of failure, whether we have a lot of money or we have very little, whether our social status is what the world wants it to be or not. Father, you tell us none of that's important, because what is important is the truth of this, Sam, that we walk in your ways, that we come to you in personal repentance, knowing that you're not a headmaster who will punish us, but you are a loving Father, unlike any father we could ever know on this earth who will open his arms and take us in and make us his very own. Father, we struggle with this day and daily. We struggle with that battle of who is going to be God of our lives. So determine, and galvanize in our hearts a desire to follow you and to make you our God in all of our practices, in all of our life choices, in all of the decisions that we make that impact ourselves, our families, our friends. Father, just capture us and make us all completely yours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.